Welcome to the Wind for Weed podcast, where cannabis catalyzes conversation. Continuing with our COVID Corona remotely responsible inspired conversations, today we will be chatting with one of the founders and owners of one of the dispensaries right here in the city of Chicago. This guy is a local enthusiast who was born and raised in the Chicagoland area, and after spending some time dabbling elsewhere, he found himself right back here in the city opening his first business. It wasn't long before the tides changed here in Illinois, and he and his partners got together and opened one of the first dispensaries in Chicago. Now we have the privilege of having a little chat with this experienced and knowledgeable gentleman who is now involved in several dispensaries and much, much more. So listen up as we are here the story of the modern cannabis dispensary. Please enjoy our conversation with Mr. Danny Marks. Here we go. Danny, thank you for being with us today and conversing with us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. How is this COVID situation treating you? It's been unexpected. Gotten a lot of extra family time, which is nice, but definitely from a, a business standpoint, it's been complicated to say the least, especially in my bar business. That's been a lot more impacted, but uh, the dispensary thing has also obviously created a something with a lot of wrinkles already. So. Absolutely. Why don't you give us a little introduction of who you are? So my name is Danny Marks. I am the founder and CEO of Mocha Modern Cannabis. We are a cannabis dispensary business in Chicago. My other business is Emporium Arcade Bar. We have a small chain of arcade bar uh, entertainment venue concept. Um, we have three in Chicago, one in San Francisco, one in Oakland, and then one in Las Vegas that we're building for, for that business dispensary. We have one in Chicago and a second one that's about to open. I always knew you guys with Emporium, and then I knew you had two locations, and then one I saw open up at Fulton Market. These are all places in Chicago for any out-of-town listeners. I had no idea you guys went out of state. That's awesome. Congrats. Uh, thanks. Yeah, we opened in San Francisco in late in a really cool old theater building from the night. So that one opened in late 2017, and then we opened in Oakland at the beginning of 2019. We're joining this cool new entertainment development in Las Vegas which was scheduled to open this summer, is coming too. But. What a genius business that, that one is. I, I always love that concept, and I'm, I'm glad you guys brought it here local. How'd you get into the cannabis realm? Aside from just sort of being a, a lifelong cannabis, I guess, enthusiast, so to speak, the bar business directly sort of led to the cannabis thing. Our first location, which is in Wicker Park, our landlord there was a, you know, he's a lifelong handful of pharmacies around the city of Chicago. And when cannabis uh, laws got passed in fall of 2013, I sort of had the thought that um, with his pharmacy background and our, our cannabis dispensary fell somewhere, medical cannabis dispensary especially, fell somewhere between a pharmacy and a, a bar. And, you know, we had been sort of deep into all the, the regulatory stuff with liquor licensing and, you know, how it impacted local the community level and then the state level and city level and zoning and all those all those things which were had a lot of parallel that was fall of 2013 when the law got passed and then and i went to our landlord and asked him his name is barry you know my brother is my partner in the 
bar business and and the dispensary business. And I, you know, went to um, our landlord Barry, who was the pharmacy guy, and basically said, you know, are you interested in joining us with this? I think between you and us, and we put a pretty good story together and have a lot of experience, and you know, do a great job with this. So he was interested, which I was a little bit surprised, but you know, he was into it, and from there we rounded out the team. Um, he had a good friend who was the recently retired at the time, deputy chief of detectives of the Chicago Police Department. So um, security was obviously a, a big concern with cannabis businesses and especially on the application front. So um, having his involvement was really helpful. And then I had other friends who had been working in legal cannabis in California who joined the team between pharmacy and security and cannabis and know-how with the regulatory stuff in Illinois and the city of Chicago. We Put a winning group if you together. Bred a pharmacist and a video arcade bar. I literally think a dispensary would be the outcome for sure. It sounds perfect. Like you guys really bookended. We were it. really focused on on craft beer at the time too, which was you know really in the the peak of its moment around 2012 when our bars opened. So you know there were a lot of parallels between sort of you know how craft beer kind of took the market by storm and even you know because it it was sort of a uh, it sort of reverted to an indie spirit and a local thing versus the, you know, Budweiser Miller Coors dominated world that we had seen for the past few decades. And especially with cannabis, every state having their own laws and no interstate commerce, um, it really looked a lot like what we were seeing in craft late aughts and early teens. There's a lot there from a, a marketing standpoint and from just sort of a organizational standpoint to look at to how you communicate when somebody walks into the, the bar and they see hundred craft beers they've never heard of or barely heard of because that was what was happening a lot, especially at that time. And 10 years ago, it's a lot of the same experience with educating your customers about small local brands and things like that, that we would see in the dispensary. And then obviously the medical side of things was well-suited for our pharmacy partner. So kind of had a good, a good group. You guys were one of the first dispensaries in Chicago. You guys were pioneers. Yeah. We, we were. Did you feel extra pressure from your neighborhood, the industry in general? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the pressure came from, you know, the application process was extremely competitive. At the time, I think hundreds of applicants applying for uh, what ended up being about 60 available dispensary permits. Um, and then even then, even further, they were divided into regions. And our region in the heart of Chicago was one of the most application regions. We definitely had a really competitive uh, area that we were applying for. So um, there was a lot of pressure and, you know, of course it was a ton of work and there was some prior to application investment we had to make. So we wanted to try to do everything in a way where we didn't take too much risk. And we just ended up getting nothing out of if we lost the application. But, you know, a lot of it was also just sort of, you know, the state and everybody was sort of figuring things out at the time. I mean, in the last, even since twenty. When the first applications came out, they were awarded in 2015. The world has matured you know, immensely in the cannabis industry since then. And, you know, there's a lot more similarities and differences, I think, between states that come online these days. But, but even now, every state is its own animal. And some are done by referendum. Some are done by legislature. Some are limited license states. Some are wide open. Some are California. And some are Arkansas. You know, so it's just a whole world and especially in 2014 there wasn't you know a ton of precedent to look at 
Some states would publish all their applications of it that people submitted, and we were able to look at which ones won there and sort of educate ourselves the best we could that way. There was still a lot of just honestly going on hide times and things like that and trying to fill out our application with, you know, the best available knowledge at the time. And, you know, there's no sort of central authority on, on cannabis because it's a, at that point, it was largely a, an illegal substance in every country. There's a lot of information out there that's dubious at best, sort of figuring out what's what and how to put together a, a story and an application and, you know, present ourselves as well-qualified and equipped to do something that had never really been done before in the state of Illinois was a, a little bit of a catch-22. We're like, we know exactly what to do, but no one's ever done it. There's a lot of learning and there's a lot of sort of making it up as you went. And we were under a microscope, you know, there was a lot of political pressure you know, none of the politicians wanted to stick their neck out and make the wrong move. And, you know, the neighborhoods were concerned. Everybody, we get a lot of, oh, I, I support cannabis, but I don't want it here. You know, a lot of the, the, the NIMBY stuff, you know, that you see across the board, but especially with this and nobody wanted to make a mistake either. Nobody wanted to be the, the ones who kind of did the wrong things. How did you get buy-in and approval from those people? Our strategy kind of from the get-go was that we were local and we lived in that area. I mean, my brother and I both lived in the Wicker Park neighborhood. Barry, our partner, had had his store there. His dad had actually opened the store when he was a kid and named it after him. So that store had been there for 70 years and Barry had owned his pharmacy there for in those buildings that the Emporium were in for decades. So, you know, we started local. We applied in our community. We went to the neighborhood groups first. We went to the aldermen. And that was really what we saw as our our advantage. I mean, we've been, you know, responsibly operating highly regulated businesses in that area with no incident for years already. So we could point to that. I mean, we, they didn't have what we had, which was that we knew the community and we thought the community would be somebody who just came flashy PowerPoint or a bunch of money. that sort of paid off. We got early city approval. And I think the state really looked pretty heavily laid our groundwork in the community and with the aldermen and our neighborhood group and all that. And we had strong letters of support and you know, that's sort of something you can't, you can't fake, you know, you can't really buy yourself. In this case, I don't think you really could because it was under a big microscope. That was sort of our path. Yeah, you guys have a awesome location. Correct me if I'm wrong. You said you were the second dispensary in the state, correct? Uh, we were the second in the city of Chicago to open. Oh. I think we were one of the first 10 in the state. I don't remember the exact number. I think the first dispensary in Illinois opened in November of 2015, and then we opened in February of 2016. So yeah, within the first few months of sort of the first wave of dispensaries opening. I think you guys kind of had a foot up in regards to being a medical dispensary. And once uh, recreational legalization kicked in, how would you compare and contrast that process? We opened in early 2016. We had 20 patients registered to our dispensary and you know there were no doctors in the state that wanted to sign the form the there had been this whole thing where the original law was passed under governor quinn who was a democrat and then he surprisingly lost and you know october was when the applications were due it was either october or september so when the applications were due and then november was the election and then governor quinn lost and then governor rauner who was a republican one and everyone was just like well what happens now you know this this new guy came in he had been kind of vocally anti-cannabis and so you know even when that application got released um it was sort of a 
a leak, like a 10, 10 p.m. Sunday night leak in January to the Chicago Sun-Times where I started getting texts, you know, somebody's like, this thing showed up and it was notes in the margin and everything. It was like, there was no announcement. These are the winners. It was more just, here was the scorecard. But, you know, since then, um, we had 20 patients when that started and, you know, a lot of hand-wringing across the board of just how we were going to roll this out. And there was a whole medical advisory panel that was introduced that was laid out in the, the original law in order to lay out how we would add conditions like pain or migraines or things like that that got approved that were a little more inclusive, cancer and HIV and things that were on the original. None of those, that medical advisory panel, even though it was pretty specifically laid out in the law to add conditions and hopefully get more patients, Rauner was pretty much just a, a wet blanket on the entire program for, for years. The first couple of years were just very slow growth. I and mean, then we opened with probably 20 patients and then maybe we had 100 or by the end of the first year and maybe 200 by the end of 2017 and then maybe five or 600 by the end of 2018 and then you know by the end of 2019 when uh governor pritz they significantly expanded the program they added more conditions the biggest thing they did was they removed fingerprint background checks for patients which was an insane idea in the first place that you know they're saying this is medicine but at the same time they're also saying you need a, a criminal fingerprint background check to get it which is to say the least uh dissuades people from wanting to get a medical card when, especially in Chicago, where most people had pretty easy access to, to pot at that point. They're like, wait, I have to get fingerprint background check just to get a medical card. So, so you know, a lot of those developments happen. A lot of it, you know, as is the case with cannabis industry, sort of followed the politics, unfortunately, but that is kind of how it played out. By the end of 2019, we went, we had probably close to 2,000 patients or more registered to our store alone, um, which is still a low number for it's high compared to the state. But, you know, there were probably about, I think, 50,000 active patients by the end of 2019. I think the, the total number of patients is probably higher, but that was about the active monthly. And, you know, for a state the size of Illinois, um, that's still a really low number compared to a lot of other states. The medical program was kind of a slow build, but there were some sort of uh, unintended, I think, benefits to that, which is that it didn't, it gave the companies time to sort of grow and improve. And it was just a controlled environment, which is a little bit more corporate friendly, I think, for better or worse. There's pros and cons to that, but it was sort of the case in Illinois. But, you know, the process of the rec license by comparison was a, you know, I think this was a good thing the state did. Um, it was a little bit controversial that they, you know, awarded the existing medical. So what they did with the new law was they, you know, if you had a medical, you would get an adult use license at the same site. And then you could also apply for a second site automatic approval by the state, but not automatically approved where you could put it. So that became sort of the, the new game is where can we put it? And then there's, you know, setbacks, dispensaries. Have, there's a big real estate component to, to cannabis and, you know, any reason because of all the, all the regulations and zoning and all there's a lot of dispensaries here everywhere but here that open up that at least when you started you guys are a private owned you and your partners how are you guys separated from that what's the difference and how does it set mocha apart from the rest yeah absolutely i mean in the cannabis world of today there's sort of uh i guess i'd say sort of three kind of major classes of cannabis companies that operate in the United States. There's what's called the MSOs, they're called, which is multi-state operators. There's publicly traded MSOs, which all trade 
in Canada. The biggest ones of them are, you know, like you said, GTI, uh, Cresco, Acrid, Cresco Labs, um, Cureleaf is a big one, Trueleaf. You know, and there's a handful. I mean, MedMen was big. They've had some well-publicized uh, financial issues. And, and honestly, they all have. I mean, if you look at the last year, a lot of these companies went public, you know, sort of based on certain assumptions about the future and a lot of which were, you know, based on politics and things probably going a little faster federally in the U.S. than they ended up going. But, you know, there's a handful of publicly traded U.S. cannabis operators. Then there's a handful of private multi-state operators who are, but they do, you know, most of them are in two or three states or they're really strong in one state. You know, the Planet 13 has this gigantic True leave is publicly traded, but they're only in Florida, but they're profitable. Then there's a you know a handful of states, and then there's just a bunch of people like us in every state that are sort of just private, independent. They have their own group, and they either have one dispensary or one grow, or they're bigger, and there's some are in a couple of states. That's kind of the the big break is between the public MSOs and then the sort of the indies. I have a family friendish person who I think was affiliated with, uh, I could be mixing his name, but grassroots here in Illinois. And then they've already been approached and bought up by one of the, I believe it was Cresco. Um, uh, Cure Leaf there. And I don't think it's actually happened yet, but it, it was announced as it's been ongoing, I think for the past year, but I don't, I don't know the exact status. Of it. This just started and these corporations are already coming and trying to Walmart everyone and suck them up and, but have you guys been approached? Is it something you're afraid of, kind of being swallowed up by the big snowball corporations? Or is it something you're not worried about? How, what's your view on that? We've definitely been approached by pro- almost everybody, honestly. Um, you know, what we have is very additive or accretive, I guess is the, the word, um, for almost anybody's business. We're not sort of a redundant asset for anybody. We're not a, a grow, and a, you know, a grow can be redundant. You don't really need more than one grow in a state if you can build it. Um, but um, we have been approached. The last year, I'd say starting fall of 2018, I'd say now-ish, but I'd say end of 2019, the industry went through a lot of consolidation. There were big mergers between some of the big, bigger MSOs that some of which, most of which honestly didn't even happen. Most of them fell apart because they just, the regulatory thing with them is just so hard because it's really new. They all needed to go to Department of Justice for antitrust stuff, which was obviously tricky with cannabis being federally illegal. You know, really slowed a lot of people down, but then it's just hard. If you're trying to acquire a company who operates under different laws in every state and requires approvals from every state and then every city and then even down to the the landlord level, I mean, it's just a lot of paperwork and regulatory stuff for these big mergers. Some of the smaller ones where a bigger company would acquire someone like us. We're in six states and we have a bunch of dispensaries and we're going to acquire your one. Um, it's a little bit, I'm idealistic, but I'm also a business person. I wouldn't say I'm afraid of the idea or even opposed to the idea of trying to find the right the right partnership situation. If Even these, quote, huge, bigger companies are, because it's federally illegal, all the actual huge corporations can't play in this space. There's a handful out of Canada that do have, Canopy Growth is one that everyone knows about. They trade on the New York Stock Exchange, and they got a big $4 billion investment from Constellation Brands, who owns Corona Beer, among other things. And that's one that's sort of a poster child, I guess, for 
you know, legal cannabis and public markets. And But again, they can only operate in Canada. So it's kind of this weird backwards world we live in where any companies that operate in the U.S. have to only trade on the Canadian stock exchanges. And any companies that can trade on the U.S. stock exchanges, like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, can only operate in Canada or other countries where it's legal to operate because you can't publicly list you know that's kind of a it's just kind of a weird situation and even these huge u.s-based companies these huge msos so to speak they're not huge companies by the standards of huge companies i mean they're like one billion valuation two billion valuation they're not 20 billion valuation 100 billion valuation like real huge companies are you know so it's kind of this weird world it sounds like the federal legalization is a huge problem for you guys because there is no consistency banking you know that's got to be hard the different regulations can you expand about that like with banking and taxes and for sure i guess from the standpoint of you know banking and taxes lots of states uh companies that operate in states don't have any banking access in illinois most companies do have banks um we have a bank that is a state charter it's down in springfield single branch small bank federally it's illegal Banks are insured by the federal government. You know, how does that work exactly? For the most part, no nationally, no national banks that I know of operate in the cannabis space. Um, so pretty much anybody who has a bank has a bank that is only in one state. And for the most part, they're single, single branch, single location banks. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think there's just a lot more regulatory scrutiny on these companies, on these banks. The federal government is definitely sympathetic to the fact that, you know, they don't want a world of just people operating in cash. It's bad for a lot of reasons. You know, obviously there's crime reasons, both both white collar crime and, uh, you know, robberies and things like that that can happen when there's a lot of cash around. The IRS doesn't want you dropping off bags of cash to pay your taxes. I mean, nobody wants a lot of cash in the electronic world that we live in. I mean, I don't know all the nitty gritty of what a bank has to go through in order to it's KYC. It's called Know Your Customer requirements and it's just a lot of you know it's just a lot of money laundering ba- you know regulations that they have to go through and you know there's a whole there's a whole process to make sure that banks are collecting legal money and not collecting illegal money and for a host of reasons even scrutinized and whatever they have to go through i do know they have to go through a lot more regulation big checking account fees where they're thousand dollar a month two thousand dollar a month type level checking account fees just for having an account and when we say, what, what is that, you know, and they say, well, honestly, if you knew how many, we have to hire a whole extra person just to regulate this in our bank. You know, a lot of these small banks that have stuck their neck, they did it mostly because you know, they live in a world with Chase and Bank of America, and they're trying to secure themselves with lifelong customers too. If somebody was good to us in these early days of cannabis, you know, we're going to do everything we can to keep being customers of them in 10 years when... Even with us, I mean, we've been through three banks since we started in 2016. The first two just sort of basically sent out an email one day that 30 days from now, we're canceling all cannabis accounts. Come get your money and sorry. Wow. Nothing you did wrong, but our, our board voted and we're out. Like you had said, it's a risky endeavor for a small private bank. They, you know, they're gambling. Same like you guys. You guys don't have a Cresco that backing you up just in case your Chicago branch fails. You have your other ones. It's, it's a risk because it's illegal. Technically, I guess the government could kind of come at them at any moment, like you've seen in California with certain operations. And 
I think the federal raids, I mean, there was the, the Cole memo and other spending bill uh, things that got passed that basically said no federal money can be used to prosecute. You know, they're kind of like anti-budgetary. Nothing in this budget can be used to prosecute state legal cannabis businesses. And, you know, the entire industry was sort of built on the Cole. It's just a memo that said the Department of Justice will not prosecute any state legal business, cannabis businesses. And the entire industry was like, okay, here we go. And then five years later, we have a multi-billion dollar industry that is in more than half the states now. And Well, it, it is always amazing watching how money changes people's minds and moral codes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we didn't have a bank, it was more an inconvenience than anything else. And pay our bills with prepaid debit cards and money orders that we would get at the check cashing place in the corner and third party IRS websites and that kind of stuff. Did you ever for fun just fill up a silver briefcase with cash and just be like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not for fun, but out of necessity. <laughs> no, you're, no, you're like, it wasn't fun because I had to walk on the street with it. <laughs> right. No, it was, those are nerve wracking walks, even if they're a block. So. That was one of the first articles I remember reading when they said, you know, one of the highest costs that these new dispensaries are security is way higher for their for your guys' businesses than one might think, because you're talking about transport from cultivation. You're talking about within the shop. And then, like you're saying, dealing in cash, it's like your secured cash machine forcefully by the government. Oh, yeah, to win your application and then to get ultimately open. You know, everyone we talk to in, in security industry and the state police and the city police, there's no other business that has security requirements like these businesses have. I mean, every inch of our it's very high tech and card swipes and just vaults and all that stuff. So it's basically now it's a little different with adult use, but under medical, no one could even come in. Like if we wanted to bring in an electrician, we would have to submit the electrician's name to the state the day before, get them on our vendor list, get our vendor list approved in order just to get anybody to come in. And honestly, if my dad wanted to come in and check it out, because couldn't. they care so much about that, but then don't care about so many other aspects that are really screwing you guys in the industry. The hypocrisy is just interesting, which actually leads me to my next question, which is tax. You guys are required to pay federal taxes. That's true. You've told me that they're higher than your average business. Can you uh, expand on that for our listeners? Let everyone know exactly kind of how, how that all works? Yep. So the thorn in the side of pretty much any legal cannabis business in the United States is what's called Tax Code 280E, which is a line in the tax code that was created back in the early 80s in order to basically prevent large drug traffickers from being able to take business expense deductions like any normal business could. What happened is a lot of these big drug dealers got busted and then the IRS came and said, well, just because you earn this money illegally, you still got to pay income tax on it. So they went and filled out a 1040 and took all their tax deductions. They said, well, I had to travel for this, so here's my airline. And obviously the IRS is like, no, you can't take expense deductions on drug trafficking money. And they wrote it into this tax code 280E that says any Schedule 1 controlled narcotic, any unlawful proceeds from a Schedule 1 drug, you know, you can't take business expense deductions. And that is still applied to state legal cannabis businesses today. There have been a lot of laws that have challenged it. And so far, pretty much the IRS has upheld there's no way around this. When the law changes, then we'll change. Their opinion is still that if you're a 
cannabis business in the United States, your money is unlawful proceeds from drug trafficking and you know any other business that could could deduct its payroll, could deduct its rent, could deduct its insurance. It's you know basically can't do any of that. So you know whereas a normal business has their sales revenue on the top line and then sort of their in our business we pay taxes on the top line which you take home basically means any expenses we have come out after that. The only exception is the cost of goods sold for, for some reason that I don't really know. If our margin is 2x, if we buy our product wholesale $15 or $30 an eighth and sell it for $60 an eighth, for example, that $30 is taxable at the income tax level for us. So, you know, it effectively ends up being 60, 70, 80% tax rate. And honestly, if you're below a certain threshold, it's more than 100%. I mean, my few years with the dispensary, because we weren't making enough money to sort of overtake all our expenses, I would have phantom income tax. So I would pay large sums above what I would actually take home in taxes personally every year. Looks great if you're trying to buy a house and get a loan, but if you're trying to actually keep money in the bank, it doesn't help. Showing a ton of income, but you know, it's not real income. So it's just sad. It's like, oh, you, we don't acknowledge your money, but we'll take your money. We won't protect your money, but we'll take extra of your money. And it's Yep. I get it takes time, but it's just super unfair and unbalanced. Like, I agree. There's a, a million frustrations dealing with the federal illegality of cannabis. And from a business standpoint, I mean, from a social justice and whatever justice standpoint, it's, you know, there's a trillion reasons why things should be federally legal. I mean, there shouldn't be a person in jail in the world for cannabis, obviously. And their problems are from the business standpoint, you know, there is sort of a flip side where the moment in time that we have right now, there is the dis disconnect between states and federal does create opportunities where everything isn't already just dominated by large corporations, because whether it's Pfizer or Budweiser or Walgreens, they're not my competitors today or the competitors of state legal cannabis businesses because it's federally legal. So there's an opportunity there for independent operators like me to exist in a world that's would otherwise be dominated by by Walgreens. I mean, Walgreens sells cigarette opioids and there's no reason they can't sell cannabis too, you know, except for the fact that it's federally illegal. So there is an opportunity in this moment in time, but again, that's silver not... lining and everything, I guess. Right. I remember there was that a rumor floating around that Marlboro patented Marlboro Greens with preparation for when it becomes legal they're like let's just get this under our belt <laughs> mm -hmm. it's not like they don't have their eye on it it's like you said they're too intertwined and too big to really stick their neck out the u.s government has patents on medical applications of cannabis even though they deny cannabis has any medical benefits by keeping it schedule one i mean there's just you know worlds of oh yeah know, that kind of stuff but but yeah i mean the biggest benefits I see from federal legalization are, aside from just the incarceration and you know lives being ruined for arrests and things like that, hopefully there will be some sort of diversion between medical cannabis and recreational cannabis. And recreation will become more what it looks like today and more honestly regulated probably how liquor and cigarettes are. And then with a medical cannabis, which obviously somewhere in this plant, there's miraculous benefits to be had you know everything from shrinking tumors to you know reducing epileptic seizures to just you know day-to-day -day pain relief that 
can't be fully explored until their $50, million FDA-approved university-backed research studies that can go into really figuring out what's going on and what's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of research out there and there's a lot of anecdotal stuff and there's a lot of scientific stuff, but until it's pharmaceutical level profit motive for these companies to dig into it and to get this research backing, I mean, I don't think we'll see the full potential of medical cannabis. I think there's a huge medical benefit from federal legalization aside from just making what we have now legal, you know, because like I said, you know, it's uh, yeah, it can't be fully understood until it's fully accepted. Until you fully accept it and make it legal or normalized, we can't research it. We can't see how it really functions on a day to day. You know, like there's too many blockades to really dive down into the nitty. I just want to go right back to the tax thing real quick. Just because, you know, here in Chicago, there's been a lot of hubbub about the taxes on now recreational weed specifically. And just for clarification, for my purposes and for everyone's, the taxes aren't high because you guys are getting taxed high. The taxes are high because the state and the city are doing it. It's not you guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And in, in everything I was talking about before with 280, that's all on the federal side. The state taxes um, and then the city taxes, too. It, you know, that's where every state's kind of different. That's why some people will come to dispensaries in some states and be like, oh, my God, $85 an eighth? You know, what is that? And we're like, well, no, it's actually 60 but we honestly pay 30 Six percent of our whatever to, for especially for recreational goes to it's not eighty five and eighth but seventy five and eighth in some cases and after taxes a lot of uh, states and municipalities see uh, a huge opportunity here to tack humongous taxes onto this new thing and I have my own sort of opinions on it for example the same product we would sell for medical will probably have one or two percent tax rate because that's about what medicine is taxed at. In terms of sales tax and you know extra taxes, privilege taxes, but then the same thing will have probably a thirty percent tax almost on recreational, even though it's the same. Price. States do it all differently, but to some degree, states say there's higher administration costs because we have to create an entire new department for this, and it's a small number of operators that are essentially having to pay for the whole thing. And then there's also the social equity component, where a lot of that goes into a cannabis fund that eventually is going to help social equity and minority and other applicants who have been disadvantaged for for one reason or another in the past be able to apply for grants and things like that to start cannabis businesses. A lot of it is probably just overreach on the part of states and municipalities who see an opportunity. Unfortunately, it, it backfires a little bit, especially you can see it in places like California that have a 20 year gray market, so to speak, and a black market. It's great to have legal cannabis now, but if you live in Chicago or San Francisco where you don't really have a lot of trouble getting it on the street, you're not going to pay 75 or 78 bucks for something you can get. I don't want people to have a negative view on dispensaries because of the taxing and people are go after the state, go after the County, but then also exactly what you just, you're almost sinking the dispensary ship because you could go get it right. for cheaper. Yeah, and that's been and that's it's tough. And it could be better for everyone. Yeah, even the cons- absolutely, it could be better for everyone. When there's a lot of excitement in the beginning, it, it's you know at a certain point, if we're going to be forced to compete with black market prices out the door, nobody cares if they're paying 
part to tax and part to us. They just care about what comes out of their pockets. So if we have to compete with what, essentially what's going to end up happening over time is we just have to eat the taxes because even if our bill, you know, it's kind of funny because it's been 55 or $60 an eighth since 20 plus years ago. It has not now, so that I remember being in California and in Northern California visiting actually our mutual friend 2005. And we were joking about how an ounce of pot and an ounce of gold both cost about four or 500 bucks at the time. And obviously an ounce of gold is at least tripled or more since then. And But weed does not. It's amazing. Right. So essentially, if we're competing with black market, then, and taxes are an extra 15, 20 bucks, we have two choices. Us and pretty much anyone else, I think, has more or less a 2x. If we're selling an eighth for 60, we probably paid about 30. You know, there's some give or take, but that's pretty much the, a pretty standard margin in, in the industry. If our price is 60, and then we're competing with 60 on the street, but there's another $17 in taxes tax, tacked onto that, we have to decide, do we sell this for 77 or do we eat into our margin? And our margin is 30 bucks on it, which is fine if you're doing huge numbers, but if you're doing you know, much smaller numbers and then with 280E taxes, it gets pretty tight to, to spread it out. It's a problem and I, I don't like these 20, 30% taxes. I mean, I don't think it helps this goal of eliminating the black market, which is obviously a goal that everyone has. And, and realistically, it's it's healthier for the world. I mean, all the, the vaping stuff you saw last year with people getting sick. I mean, that was all black market. Yep. Cannabis vapes because, you know, people look at this and they're like, okay, I have all this oil. I can double it by just putting some yep. vitamin E or some other sort of propylene glycol in there and make twice as much money and there's no one regulating it. So what it does by keeping taxes so high it really just perpetuates the black market and the black market. And if the black market is seeing legal supply come into the market, they have two options. One, they can buy their product from cartels or illegal drug dealers or wherever black market, or they can go to Colorado or Washington or Oregon or even and buy legal product at full price and then just cut it with something like vitamin E that's going to get people, you know, whatever they do with flour. And there's a lot of issues with it. And it's all connected to each other. Taxes are something nobody likes to pay, and there's there's reasons for it. But um, you know there isn't there is new new program and new administrative costs and new burdens and social equity and all this stuff that taxes can be positive for and helping our our government state governments yeah, get out. Of I think as a consumer, things think, like that. You know, but at the same if I'm going to pay a little extra a and have quality, so. meaning I know, like you said, I know it's eco friendly harvested, but to know that you're just paying. For whatever, it's kind of like, well, there's good product you can still get off the black market, which makes it even harder for you guys. And a lot of it's just legal stuff from states like Oregon or Washington or Colorado that have much lower costs. But, you know, I think one thing I do think happens, and I think once people kind of make the switch, it's pretty hard to go back. You know, like even if it's more expensive, I think for a lot of people, I mean, it happened to me personally, but I'm in a different situation. But, I, you know, I know a lot of people are like, once I started going to dispensaries, the thought of like calling the dealer and like getting some bag of who knows what seemed to me like this insane prospect, even though I'd done it every week of my life for the last 10 years. Now that I go to a store and get something sealed and it has chemical breakdown labels on it and all this stuff, and I'm not a criminal. And aside from all the the funny stuff of sitting and talking to your dealer for an hour or whatever (laughs) you have to do when you buy a pot, you know, but like the legitimacy of it, it's like, wait a minute, I, I'm never going back to that again. And 
I'll pay a little extra just to feel like a, a person. You know? Once you fly first class, it's hard to go back <laughs> to coach. Right. We're having a supply issue here in Illinois, which also is kind of indirectly feeding back into the black market because there's still a shortage. There's still line. Mm-hmm. You guys had a line. I think it was four or five blocks long when we were Yeah. There. I mean, that was the... That was day one, but that that hasn't subsided. The only thing that's changed is coronavirus. After halfway through January, we just went to rack only two days a week because we didn't have product for it. So it wasn't that. So why is there a supply issue? Will it be remedied? I mean, I don't know why at this point, when every state that comes online has the same issues, I don't know why they don't license legal grows a year before they license legal dispensaries, give people a year to get built out and, and, grow. and grow it <laughs> and be ready to supply these markets. It's, it's just politics. When somebody's decided, a governor has decided, they're in, they don't want their instant gratification. They're like, I'm in, I'm doing this. I don't want to give people a year to beat me up over this who don't like it. I want to capitalize on the good press today and the headlines and I want to be at the front lines of this thing, and I want it to happen fast because I'm a fast, decisive decision maker, and that's what politicians like. They like to see fast results, and it takes time to build. You know, Illinois had had a market that was 50,000 active patients at the end of 2019, and then 100x at a minimum to 5 million potential customers on January 1st. So overnight, the demand... 100x not even thinking about you know tourists and all the other people that would come from every other state around nearby and all that so obviously it's a crazy uh economics experiment and supply and demand but it's a plant you know you can't just make more plastic ones in china everything has to be grown in state there's no there's no interstate commerce on it so you know everything has to be done in state and done in big factories that grow plants it takes three to four months to grow it and trim it and cure it and all that stuff. And then it takes a year to build a factory, you know, or six months. So, and get it approved and get it inspected and all the stuff. So it's just, there's laws of physics about, and biology about just building and growing that you can't legislate. It's politically driven. And if you are a governor and you say, all right, let's do this, you look better when people are like, I want more, I want more, there's not enough, it makes you look like you made the right decision. Well, look, people want it. It's in demand, it's in high demand, which it makes the whole endeavor look more successful, even though the consumers aren't getting what they want. Not to mention, also, I said this to a guy I work with, he goes, oh, you know, it's fucking ridiculous, the prices, da 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 I go, I go, yeah, I agree. You were just standing in lines. You knew about this, yet you were still standing in line. So the supply thing also, indirectly, strategically, makes people okay with paying the higher price right now. There's also a worry, and a lot of it comes from you know lobbying by existing players, but there's also a worry that if they license 100 new grows and then they oversaturate the market, they get into a situation where prices come down so much that it does feed a new black market, or people can't, you know, there's not enough money for people to operate responsible businesses because you know there's too much supply so too much supply is a problem too because if businesses aren't making enough money they're gonna close up or not cut corners yeah so so there needs to be a balance in regards to the timing of the rollout i think 
Illinois was ultimately from law passage to on May 31st to stores open on January 1st was a little bit fast, but you know, I do think Illinois actually, all things considered, and believe me, it's it's far from perfect. I'd say almost an exemplary job for a lot of states to do to 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 look at because came out boldly and in favor. And he's like, look, you know, maybe it won't be perfect, but I'm getting behind this and I'm going to support it 100. percent And I believe that this is the right thing to do for the world and logistics be damned a little bit in the next year or so. And we're gonna we're gonna make this right and we're gonna correct this thing. And I you know I applaud Pritzker and even just as much uh, Cassidy and Steens, who are the the two women, uh, one's a congressman, one's a senator, and, and they both, you know, they both did a year of outreach. They went to every town, every, every interest group, every municipality, anybody who wanted to talk to them, they were available, and they really, they talked to the industry, and, you know, they, I think they did a great job of, you know, sort of listening to Everybody, you know, but now I think the social equity stuff is, especially in terms of the expungement, the social equity, the business ownership stuff gets a lot of press, but the, the real social equity thing was that they expunged almost a million criminal records in this bill. I mean, that's, that's incredible, you know. As far as a handful of minorities owning businesses, that's great too if it works out, but, um, you know, the impact on that from a macro standpoint is nothing compared to dropping a million criminal records, 750 or whatever it was, you know. So um, for those who are seriously complaining, yes, it's not perfect, but it's legal. Right. Understand it. It is legal. Pritzker, the senators, all the activists, it's like it is legal. So w- the huge hump is passed. Now let's to work out the some new- controversial stuff. I mean, the existing players did get a little bit of a bump, but they also suffered through five years of medical losing money every year in order to responsibly set a groundwork that could be built upon for a legal market. And if you're going to do this, you need people who have experience and capital so that they can stay afloat while it's all figured out. Because if you legalize it and let whoever just hop in and you have a bunch of businesses fail because of lack of experience, lack of capital or whatever, that just makes it look shitty for everyone. It makes sense that some of the big wigs get the first pinch to, lay, like you said, lay the groundwork. What will be really interesting is what happens May 1st and see how all these licenses get handed out mm-hmm. to see if the equity really is starting to pop through. It'll be really interesting in the next month or two. I don't think a single group will win any of these new licenses, the new dispensaries or craft grows that weren't a social equity applicant. They better not. I mean, the social equity thing is... Some people are trying to game it. Some groups are, I've heard of people just straight up hiring people and giving them $5,000 to put their name on the application as an owner. I've heard of, you know, what we did. I mean, we applied and we essentially sent out an email to all our, all our C has lived five of the last 10 years. in one of these areas on this map that's shaded red, we helped them start an LLC and that LLC owned 51% ownership and control of our applications we made in January for new dispensaries. And they're in control and own the company and us from Mocha who are existing, we own the 49% and hopefully we all work together. And oh wow! ultimately it is a legitimate social equity company. Everyone had different approaches. Some are just straight up groups that don't have any connection to existing groups um, or existing cannabis businesses. And they just want to do their own thing. And um, so I think the state's being pretty careful about people trying to mess with the, the process or fake their social equity stuff because 
I think they got a lot of heat the first time around and they really want to see it get done right. In the latter example you gave, that's when it's nice that there's some sort of fun for people who should get a chance and should get a swing at it and don't have the capital and can't get the capital that there is aid for them. Mm -hmm. It's nice to know that that's hopefully going to happen. And the point totals, the way the applications work out are just massively, I mean, it's like 20% of your application goes towards if you social equity or not. I don't see how anybody could win any of these licenses, these new, the next rounds of licenses without being a, a social equity group. So, well, hopefully we'll see, and hopefully they commit to their transparency act. You know, we had, we were at a forum, we talked to the senators, they, you know, I asked, I said, what are you guys going to do about transparency? And they listed a bunch of ways that they're evolving the system and they're going to try to keep transparency enforced so that like you had mentioned not companies aren't trying to wiggle through the back doors with it and i might be naive but my experience has been that there's not a lot of funny business going on these days with with the state and backroom deals and things like that i mean for the most part i think the the groups that are evaluating these applications and licensing these businesses are pretty insulated from political lobbying but i'm sure it goes on to some degree it's just funny because like the whole cannabis culture and the history of cannabis you would hope because it's very you know peace my brother equality blah, blah blah so you would hope in this industry there's a little better moral code hanging on but then when you introduce so much money to any business and any human being it gets the potential to get dodgy and the world's changed too i think there's just yeah there's a lot more daylight on things you know almost too much because Everything gets lost in the shuffle now, but when we started our bar businesses, I mean, you're going to get shaken down, you know, this and that. I'm like, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, even building inspectors who would just would be like, is this guy, I'd like call my lawyer, be like, does this guy want to pay out? I mean, what is going on? Why is he giving us such a hard time? He's like, no, nah, I think he's just, they don't do that anymore. Back to Mocha. Where do you guys get your supply from? How do you choose what products you guys carry? Who's your supplier? Who's your cultivator? You can look on our menu on our website and see who we get our product from. We get them from pretty much everybody in 2020 when with REC and sort of paused for, for coronavirus stuff. But in 2020, it was we would get every single thing we could from anybody. I mean, there's been such a shortage. But does it have to be in Illinois? Oh, yeah. Everything's Illinois. No, there's all it's all in-state. So there's no... How many cultivators are there in Illinois currently? I want to say like... About 10, maybe, or give or take, that are pretty active. There might be a couple more that are either new or inactive. These are all big. None of these are craft growers. Yeah, that doesn't really exist too much yet. There's one group that's sort of a little smaller. They're more of a nonprofit, um, medical-focused one down called Shelby County. For the most part, Illinois companies, there's only a handful. Probably 80% of our product comes from the, the top four or five producers and that's sort of the case across the board in the state illinois growers do a great job for the most part it's not perfect everybody has their likes to gripe about everything in the world but i'd say across the board i mean i spend a lot of time in san francisco and california and at least what you see in the the illinois stores versus like san francisco stores i'd say illinois is you know definitely neck and neck if not better in a lot of cases just because the market's a lot more defined and the competitive landscape's a lot more clear, so companies know what they have to do to be the best. People are, you know, you're dealing with five or six producers or seven or eight up to 10, not hundreds like you would have in California or Colorado, and consumers are a lot more brand conscious, and they're a lot more, oh, this is my favorite cultivator, and 
there is a little more payoff for people to do a better job here because there's just less competitive. The competitive landscape is a little more defined. We work with everybody. About a year ago, the dispensary was in the pilot's chair of deciding. Our menu probably had 200 SKUs on it a year ago for, for medical and probably 50 different strains of flour. And now it's on a good day, probably 10 strains of flour for medical and zero for rec or one for rec, if anything. It's really changed a lot, but you know it'll probably flip back again. And at some point, there'll be enough supply that it'll flip back to Again, dispensaries getting to be picky and choosy, and we never just bought everything. But are you able to, you and your partners, you go to the uh, cultivators to see, to tour, and then pick, or is it uh, you just kind of do it virtually? Or we went to most of them in the beginning, but it's not a regular visit. Like you're not going shopping every month. No, I mean maybe some people do, but I, I definitely don't. I mean most of them are are downstate or hours away from Chicago. It's not just a drive down the street. I think people have a pretty good idea. There's some there's some value brands, there's some premium brands, and most people try to span the board of having premium and value stuff, but our staff at this point, they know these products intimately. They're much more in it on the connoisseur level than, than I am. They have strong opinions about who they think makes the best flour, who makes the best shatter, who makes the best carts, who makes the best edibles and gummies and candies and chocolates and all this stuff. So we try to do the best and the best per category of everything, but beggars can't be choosers too. So we kind of found ourselves in a beggar's position, especially when it came to rec in, in 2020 so far. So um, I don't think that's permanent, but there's a lot of rules in place to protect medical stores from getting clobbered by recreational supply issues. But it's definitely happened. I mean, we've seen our medical supply dwindle. I mean, medical supply was already seeing shortages at the end of last year because like I said earlier, the, the background check issue getting taken. You know, medical cards were taking 100 days to process in 2016, 2017, even 2018. And under Pritzker, he changed the rules. So basically, people get cards next day. So if you go to a doctor today, you get your card tomorrow, or even honestly, same day in some cases. To your knowledge, did it also change? Like you used to have to have like a five-year relationship with your doctor and that, that went away too, right? It wasn't exact. It was a bona fide relationship, you know, and some doctors were more uh, were more concerned with the interpretation of that than others. I mean, at this point, there are some doctors that are a little more akin to what you'd see in other states that are a little bit more like show up and that's their main businesses that they, I mean, they're real doctors. They will see patients for a variety of things, but their primary business is, you know, medical cannabis. You had quickly touched upon that, how in the know your employees are. Do you have some sort of training program that you put them through? How does one become such a connoisseur? It's a mix of things. We definitely have a training program and, you know, a lot more of that has to do with policies and procedures of our stores and compliance and regulatory compliance. And, you know, and then there's general cannabis knowledge and training. And most people who are applying already have that to some degree, or they're at least interested and aware and a lot of that is just knowing strains and knowing products. And it's an industry with a lot of excitement around it. So we get a, a lot of applications. So it's always a balance between the guy who knows the most about pod and the person who's going to be the most organized at doing a good job. You know, inventory is a huge deal for us. We have to do inventories every day and under very specific guidelines. And then there's customer service and you're at the counter. So with any any kind of business, the the person who knows the product the best isn't always your best salesperson or your best manager or your best administrative person. It's always a balance of rounding out a good team. Some of our 
product experts aren't our, the people you necessarily want talking to the customers all day. They educate themselves. I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say probably the majority, if not all of our staff are now legal cannabis users. So they are well-versed and they all love this product and they're passionate. And a lot of our people are sick too. So that was a big thing. That was a big other side of things is a lot of these people who are coming in as patients, they couldn't talk to their doctor about this. You know, they had nobody to talk to. So they would talk to us about their chemo. They'd be like, how is this going to affect my chemo? And our staff are like, well, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to tell you that exactly, but they're sick. In the early years, it was almost everyone who came in was legitimately really sick. And if you got this job because you love weed, and then the next thing you know, like you're talking to somebody about their gastrointestinal issues all day and how they can't sleep at night and how they hate their life. It's a tough job. You know, it's hard to talk to people about their medical problems. It's not something that I'm in a position to train somebody to do. I'm not a, you know, we have pharmacy people, we have other things, but um, even pharmacy, people can talk to their doctors. And in this case, that was only even sort of the case for a lot of people. So it's, it's been an interesting thing. It's been a, it's like nothing else, but you know, our staff are great. Um, They're passionate, especially now with coronavirus, we're a, a unique business that has been deemed essential, which is pretty interesting to go from illegal to essential. And what a difference a couple of years makes, but still they, they show up, they put the masks on and you know, they're there dealing with people all day. And because from a medical standpoint, it's for a lot of people, it's their lifeline. And from a, for the same reason, liquor is essential. It's gets a lot of people through the day. For those who haven't been to Mocha, can you explain the experience for recreational customers and medical customers, what that process looks like? Absolutely. So medical, we switched to, or we added online ordering about two years ago and since then that's about that was about 75 percent of our business ultimately where people would just order online we have all our stuff online you can go on there read about it there's pictures and you can do whatever research you want and then people place their orders and they get an email your order is ready for pickup just like if you ordered a prescription or something at walgreens and you show up if we try to get people through especially with online ordering as fast as possible then we'd have consultations available for people who were new or had medical issues or just wanted to, you know, they were new to this and had a lot of questions. So um, we'd kind of break people in between sort of express online pickup and and walk-in consultation orders. Then with adding rec, any notion we had that this was going to be this experience that was at least in in the first beginning months of some sort of enhanced shopping experience became when when the lines of people started showing up, it's like, Jesus, we just got to get people off the sidewalk and through the store as fast as possible. I mean, it was just, how do we manage the crowds more than like, how do we give everybody like this great 360 degree educational introduction to cannabis and all that. The early days of this with hardly any new dispensaries being open and us being one of five dispensaries on day one or so that were in the whole city of Chicago of whatever, 3 million people plus visitors. You know, we have our bar right next door, which is 10,000 square feet. So we would use that space for just housing people waiting. And we'd have monitors up. If your number, you know, we give people numbers, go get in line to the dispensary, your numbers, you know, this kind of thing. But it became a lot of queue management. And then just getting people through the line, we basically started a whole separate space that was just for waiting and, and queue processing. The name of the game with Rec just became speed above all else at this point in the early days, just because... There's not a lot of new stores. There's not a lot of products on the menu anyways to talk about. So it's kind of like, 
people would show up and it'd be, there was honestly no flour most days. Vapes and edibles were pretty much what we were selling. We'd run out of stuff and lots of updates on Twitter and Instagram every hour. We ran out of this, ran out of that. Not even to get into the fact that that caused Facebook to delete our Instagram account because they don't support legal cannabis businesses. That's a whole other wrinkle of we can't even tell people about stuff using social media without worrying that our pages are going to get deleted at any point. Twitter's pretty good, but no one's really on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Facebook rejected all of our ads. Yeah, Emporium was holding educational events for medical, not even having to do with any purchasing, and Emporium's entire ad account got deleted after like five years of building up audiences. And, you know, we had 200 different audiences segmented on there and all this different stuff we'd done. They're just like, nope, sorry, you did this cannabis event and we're not going to listen to you. It's crazy. So Rec has been, it was a bumpy rollout from our side of things just because there was no other way. I mean, we'd have 1,000, 1,500 people a day showing up every time we would do Rec. And so we basically switched to, rather than doing the constant stop-start thing every day, we're out of this, we're out of that, we just switched to doing two days a week Rec. And that was January, February, right up until basically shut Rec down in mid-March because of uh, COVID. Been medical only since then. We're going to hopefully be rolling out our online rec ordering with appointment pickup windows and things like that in may and get rec going again and medical too so we had to do some tech upgrades and just sort of come to terms with the fact that this isn't going to a two-week thing like we thought it might be in march when we closed and this is much longer thing so we gotta we gotta come up with a new plan to deal with it but you know otherwise the store experience i mean it's pretty neutral we try to be modern and you know art and we use a lot of neon colors, and but for the most part, it's pretty simple, pretty minimalist. I mean, we're not, there's not a ton of like merchandising shelves or anything like that. People can't really browse product samples too much. Everything in Illinois has to come to the dispensary pre-sealed. So we don't do the whole, here's a big jar and you can smell it and check out the buds and all that stuff. Anything that we open to even for a sample to show somebody, we would have to destroy within a week. It doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have a lot of smell jars and things like that out there so Ooh, can i um, apply for a destruction license so i can go collect destructing samples it's not a thing um it's the destruction process is almost comical it's a very specific process you have to basically tell them where you're going to do it at what time each week and then even show them like you know what do you how are you going to break it we have coffee grinders and cat litter and bleach basically and it's all just sitting right there on this little table under a camera that they can watch from the state police that they can log into remotely and watch us do our destructions and I try not to be critical of of the state because i know they they definitely are doing their best to to do things the right way but the destruction process is is a little bit ridiculous for sure i mean they're just like where's the cat litter i'm like uh we'll go get some okay like Come on, give me a break. Do you have plans? Do you foresee? Is there any talk of like smoke rooms or smoke shops? And could you ever blend your businesses together? Could we potentially? I mean, because our bar is next door to our dispensary, there's a potential that we could apply for a zoning change and a state change and somehow, you know, right now you're not allowed to sell alcohol and cannabis in the same space. So potentially we could... Potentially, we could surrender our liquor license and and apply with the state and the city to have our dispensary license go across both businesses. And then, but you know, and that's from like a, a regulatory standpoint. Um, there are the rules right now. I think say 
a smoke shop can become a consumption lounge and maybe right. a dispensary, but those are not connected with the city and the state right now. I think the state says it can be a, a dispensary or a um, smoke shop. The city right now is only saying smoke shops because cigar smokers and pot smokers want to sit in the same room with each other. For the cigar rooms, like you mentioned, those are the only ones where you're allowed to smoke currently. They said, oh yeah, you guys can do it, but you need to put in a new filtration system. It's like 50 to 200 grand worth of work. So it's all, everyone's just like, no, nah, I'm not doing it. And they can't sell it. From a business standpoint, it makes no sense ever. Obviously, alcohol and cannabis are have very different effects on people. And one is much social and inducive towards doing more. And one is purchasing more drinks. Yeah. <laughs> and one is public social situations, something where people want to be high around a bunch of other people and have that kind of thing. I mean, maybe some people, but I wouldn't say that's the the prevailing uh, use case for, for cannabis users is that they want to be in like a very social environment. The bigger thing is just sort of controlling consumption. I mean, with a beverage, you can, I mean, some people do sneak stuff in, but for the most part, it, it's hard to sneak in enough beer to get past even liquor. You know, people are too afraid of getting caught breaking rules to really try to sneak their own liquor in. I mean, it definitely obviously happens. I could see a consumption lounge working either on like a, of a food and beverage level where you would pay like a fixed price to come in and get this prefix meal and you just pay one price. And then I could also see it being more of a, a bar type situation where there's cannabis beverages that are more like single use. So two, three milligram THC beverages more akin to what a beer would do for you. So you need to buy two or three to really get it going in terms of intoxication, but also, you know, you're not going to take too much. Some of these beverages that are out there now, it's like, here's a hundred milligram beverage, only drink 10% of it at a time, you know? And it's like, who's doing that? You know, who's like, and maybe you're sharing it, but nobody's drinking two sips of a bottle and putting it away. So, you know, there's a lot of that consideration. And then it's just kind of from a business standpoint, having a, room full of a hundred stone people like hanging out because i've gone to the smoke rooms in san francisco and they're okay you go in and it's not like hard to find somewhere to smoke so you're basically the one i've been to there is like a looks like a sports bar kind of leather booths and brick walls and you sit down and four of you smoke a joint and sit there for 30 40 minutes you spent five or ten bucks on it and maybe something else, but you're kind of good. And then you're like, this room is so smoky. I want to get the hell out of here. That was my experience anyways. It's just like, even with all the air filter stuff, it's still so smoky in there. So, When I asked the question, I was like, well, from a cultural standpoint, Amsterdam, smoke shops, it's great. And da, da. But then, you know, as you talk, that was special because it was unavailable here. And it was like a fabulous destination. Right. The Dutch, the Hol they don't go in there. Right. It's all the tourists. So I can see how, from your angle now, like how it's like, eh, probably not a main goal for you. And if you're going to Amsterdam, you can't just smoke in your hotel. Like you said, it's, it's the tourist experience. Maybe there is a demand for, for tourist consumers, but, but even then, you can go to the park. But as every state becomes legal, it's like it becomes less special. Right, and you can walk around the block. You're safer smoking in public here than you are in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, I had a buddy get not arrested but they like saw him smoking they're like dumb american give us your weed here's a ticket get away from us but uh no i, I guess that all does make sense um do you have 
any future plans, hopes, or goals for MoCA that you want to share? We're opening next door in downtown in Chicago on Ohio Street. That should be open in the next month or so, hopefully. And then apply for some more and we'll see how it goes. I mean, the, the, the world changes fast in cannabis. And just so everyone knows, Original Mocha is on Milwaukee. The exact address is 2369 Milwaukee. We also have a, an entrance on Fullerton at 2847 Fullerton. So we're right at the corner of Milwaukee and Fullerton. Mocha, it's in Logan Square. So great area to visit under less shelter-in-place times. But we're open and moderncan.com. You can place an order and Hopefully in May, we'll be back running rack through our website again. Thanks so much for chatting with us. We hope to talk to you in the future and see how things have progressed for you guys. And yeah, hopefully under federally legal terms. Well, I enjoyed this and uh, appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Dan, for your time. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. We are out. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. To learn more about cannabis and help normalize the culture, visit us at winforweed.com. That's W-I-N-F-O-R-W-E-E-D.com. There you can learn about legalization efforts, purchase weedware, or sign up to receive updates about the ever-evolving cannabis culture in your inbox. We want to thank our sponsors. Without them, today's episode would not be possible. First is Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Our second sponsor is Creamy Joint Design, helping your customers get to where they want to go. Creamy Joint is a design firm focused on branding, design strategy, and user experience consulting. Check them out at creamyjoint.com. That's K-A-R-I-M-I-J-O-I-N-T.com. Thank you and much love.